So, hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with journalist, novelist, screenwriter, critic and comedy writer. It's David Quantic. Hey, David, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you, Paula? I am good. It's lovely to be chatting with you today. So, I usually like to talk initially about childhood. It's not something we generally know too much about people in your line of work. Um, so what was young David like? Was he kind of the outspoken <laughs> man that we know today? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I was I was a bit hyperactive as a kid, but I wouldn't uh-huh. say I was. And I really liked comedy. I didn't really like music much. I liked the goodies and whatever else was on television. And I got goon show annuals for Christmas and me and a school friend called Andrew Whitby used to reenact them on tape. And yeah, I always... As a kid, I just really liked comedy. I didn't really like going out much or playing or sport. I hate sport. So you weren't a very sociable kid. You just kind of kept to yourself. Well, when you're a kid, you have to be sociable because you go to school. Exactly. And the cubs. I hated the Cubs as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you go swimming. I liked swimming. So that was pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the Cubs was a, was a bit of a necessary evil, wasn't it, for a lot of, lot of young boys? Not evil, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, necessary evil for a lot of young boys makes it sound a lot worse. But Cubs was all right. You got badges, um, but they made me a sixer, which is like the head of a group of kids, right. and I had no authority. Um, but there were lots of tasks, so you know you learned how to dive, except I didn't, and swim and right. tidy your bedroom. You could get a badge for that, which is fantastic. Um, but mostly, I didn't like being the Cubs because it was on at the same time as Scooby Doo. Oh um, right. In those days. When things were on television, that was it. So I've seen plenty of episodes of Scooby-Doo since. Yeah, it's all about priorities, isn't it, David, you know? It is, really. Um, <laughs> if you want to get a badge for tidying your bedroom or to watch the most repeated cartoon of all time, it's hard to Indeed. spot the difference. Indeed. So are you from a big family? Do you have uh, any siblings? Um, oh, That's a long complicated. It's not that complicated. No, I'm from a small family. I've got a sister. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Very good. So you went to you went to school in Plymouth. Uh, was there any was there any kind of plan for when you left school? Were you did you have an idea in your head that you wanted to to go into comedy? Was there any? I suppose at that age you don't really know what you want to do. It's all kind of the world is your your oyster. Yeah, and also when I left school in the seventies, it was you know you could go to university and someone else would pay for it. Mm. Just went there because you know the educa- higher education, if you could get in university, was like a conveyor belt. You went to yeah, primary yeah. school, then secondary school, and then you either went and got a job or you signed on, or you went to college. It was quite easy. It was like, yeah, you know, you don't have to worry about student loans and stuff. Most of my friends at college were doing things like geography, for which there was no practical application. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I did law because I had a vague idea that I might wow. be a barrister, but I wasn't any good at it. So no, most, a lot of people just went in and, the, you know, a degree was a thing that would get you a job when you left. Mm. So it was a way of getting three years off. So I moved from Devon, which was small in a way, to London, which was big. Mm. And then I started to get interested in things. So I mean, how, did the, how did the writing thing come about? I mean, obviously, you know, the writing kind of led you to the NME, but obviously you don't kind of just walk into a job like that. Well, I've never really had a job. Um, <laughs> I haven't. I've never had a signed up contract for more than a yeah. month or something. Um, well, I liked writing, 
you know, I used to write things when I was a kid and then like everyone does. And I wrote longer things. And um, yeah, and the first thing I printed for money was in a magazine called City Limits, which was a left wing version of Time Out that didn't Right. last for long. And I had a, a like a parody of a private eye story, private eye like detectives, not like that magazine. And obviously that went nowhere because they were a listings magazine and they couldn't run a private eye parody. So I just did some reviews for them. And that's how I became a reviewer. A lot easier, you know, because the enemy would give you records and things and books Yeah, to review. yeah. And actually getting things made, I just had loads of comedy stuff rejected until Hmm. the mid 80s when Spitting Image bought some stuff of mine. So that was good. Yeah, I mean, Spitting Image was was huge, wasn't it? You know, for for us that were kind of around at the time when Spitting Image was out, it was like It everyone, was, but it was everyone a Sunday. watched it. I don't, it was interesting, the slot, because it was like 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday when most people Hmm. are either in bed or suicidal. So, yeah, I can't imagine you put something out at 10 o'clock on a Sunday now, unless it was just some people in high-vis jackets being murdered. Yeah, very true. So what led you to the enemy? I mean, obviously you had that passion for music um, initially, but do you know what I mean? I, th I think you have to be of a certain, I don't know, a certain sensibility to, to do, to do that initially. I think it was because the enemy was like a safe, not a safe place, but it didn't really feel intimidating to, Hmm. you know, because I wrote to them and sent them some reviews and was rude about them. But it, and also because of punk rock happening and stuff like that, it's, it was accessible. They did, unlike most newspapers, they did read letters, they did read um, submissions and reviews. And they would offer you work because they needed to fill the flipping thing. It came out every week and it was massive. They needed to fill it. So somebody said, I'll do you 200, you know, I can do 200 words, it's readable. And so I joined an awful lot of people who didn't have jobs, who were sending stuff in, getting it printed, and you just keep going from there. So, Yeah, I suppose it's a stepping stone, isn't it? I mean, it's it's about taking that first step into sort of getting your name out there as well, I suppose. Well, it was amazing, the amount of people, you know, I've always said, who went through the NMA, went on to do other things. Mm. There's very few. I mean, I think someone like Steve Lamack would probably still be there if there hadn't been sort of management changes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Some people were in it for the music. People like Steve Lamack was just in it for the music. He was a good writer, but he cared about the music more than the writing. Some people, like me, were interested in the music, but we were much more interested in what you could do with the writing. Mm. So has the, has the writing aspect always come very naturally to you? I'm assuming that you, there was never any kind of, you never did any courses. I know you obviously used, you were talking about the degrees and things there in, in the law. Was there any, has, has the writing aspect always come very naturally? Um, well, I, I suppose so. I mean, it's just, yeah, it has come easily. I don't know about naturally. I've always found it easy to write. And you reach a certain level where you think, am I going to get any better at this? Yeah. Or am I stuck here? And you just say, was it worth me practicing or going on a course? Maybe I'm just like this. So, yeah, I enjoy, I still enjoy writing. I still do it because I like it Mm. as well as getting paid for it. Yeah. Well, no, you're obviously very good at it, David. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I mean, brilliant you, at it. or you wouldn't be where you are No. now. So, what was it that started your comedy writing journey? That's kind of what we're going to try and focus on a little bit more uh, in this chat. Obviously, it's a very, very different discipline. Than, than writing uh, reviews for the NME. How did that how did that comedy writing journey start initially? What was the first thing you worked on? Uh, the comedy writing, well, it started, the thing is, I had read these goon show scripts and listened Mm. to the goons and 
I didn't know that I wanted to write or anything. I had a typewriter off my mum. That's what started it, because I could write legibly. And also, whenever I got these comedy books, like the Goons book or the Monty Python or the Goodies books, they were always full of funny letters. Yeah, yeah. Some reason it was mocking officialdom. It was, and it was like, oh, I can do that. So I would write them for fun for myself, and then I would write things for the school magazine that were like the Goon shows and laugh at them. And so it just went on from there. And it, the whole thing that I say to writers is basically, you see someone else doing it, and if you think you can do it, do it. You don't have to be the best writer in the world. You just have to be better than the rubbish that you're watching or reading now. And I was. And a friend of mine said, oh, you can do this. You could do better than that. And that was helpful. But so the writing journey was just, I don't know, writing things that lots of people do who enjoy writing. You write parodies when you're a kid, draw cartoons, write, try and write stories and stuff. And it just sort of, it just continued really. Yeah, yeah. And there comes a point when you're an adult and you either have to do it as a hobby or you have to do it for money. And a lot of people obviously <laughs> give up because they've got jobs and families yeah. and things. But I didn't at the time, so that was great. So did did you have to train yourself to write differently? I mean, did you kind of have to, I don't know, change the way the way you wrote to to suit this new avenue you went down? Well, some people like me don't know, have a didn't think I had particularly a style. Mm. I've always been adapt things have always been adaptable, which was great being a music journalist. Because in the NME at that time, it wasn't just music. You'd be like, all right, you can go and interview an author yeah yeah all right so suddenly you're writing about a detective writer or you're going to interview the interview the man who directed who framed roger rabbit so suddenly you know and these are things that if you worked on a a real newspaper you'd be expected to have some expertise you know yeah yeah in film studies was we just went in and met famous people and talented film directors and the like and just subjected them to stuff so <laughs> but you were you had to be adaptable Unless you were a specialist writer, just writing about Nigerian music or something, but generally, yeah. and with the comedy as well, because when you're a comedy writer, you generally end up writing parodies of things, mocking things, trying to you find voices, and I was always quite adaptable. So sometimes you have to be careful. You're not right. Yeah, I used to write voiceovers for, oh, like I don't know, crappy documentaries, and there was all these horrible links. You know, like, meanwhile, back in the pie factory, or. <laughs> But it's not just the RAF that Alan's interested in. It's also hippopotamuses. And you're like, oh, I'm just connecting different bits of footage. Yeah, and yeah. Cares. So that's probably a low point, doing those. But thank, you, <laughs> thank you for the work and the money, and I'll still do it. But well, know, it's obviously a skill to it, you know. Well, it's certainly something you learn how to do and get better or worse at. Yeah. So did, did radio come, was radio that what came first? No, I say, well, I tried, I wrote the things for Spitting Image, and then I tried uh -huh. to get things on, more things on Spitting Image, but couldn't. Right, right. And then I tried to do, but no, the main thing was that I was writing a, co-writing a column in the enemy with a writer called Stephen Wells, mm -hmm. who was brilliant. And Armando Iannucci read it. He was looking for writers for a pilot show, which became On the Hour. Yeah. So I wrote on that, and that got me more work, and... Yes, I've worked on many of Armando's shows and Chris Morris's shows since, but radio's great because it's cheaper, so you've got more yeah, chance yeah. of getting on the radio than you have on television or on Netflix. So I've done lots and lots of radio shows and been really enjoyed them because they're fun to write for and they're pretty much a verbal medium. Mm. I'm not really into slapstick, so 
you just write good lines and people will like them. Yeah, I suppose with radio, you're trying to make a visual image with the, with words, you know? Oh, totally. I remember once writing a monologue for something and it was about a man moaning about how much money he had. And halfway through, he said, I mean, look at this ridiculous crown I'm wearing. <laughs> I always like that joke because at this point, until that point, obviously you have no idea that he's been talking to you while wearing <laughs> a crown. And that's a radio thing. And yeah, you know, the thing about the goons and other shows was that they created these incredible worlds because you could move around with complete ease. There's a Tony mm. Hancock episode where oh, he's yeah. in an aeroplane and Kenneth Williams is on the wing of the plane. And obviously, if you did that on television, it would just be absurd oh. and wouldn't work. But on radio, it works perfectly well. Um, so was it quite an easy transition writing for, for radio and TV? Did you kind of have to put a different hat on to do to do the two different things? Do you know what I mean? If you're writing for radio, it's a, it's a specific, it's one kind of way. And if you're writing for TV, it's different. Obviously, as we said, it's more of a, making a visual image. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, writing for things like on the air and the day to day, mm. they weren't particularly. There wasn't big leaps because the day to day was a visual show, but it only because it copied the grammar fair shows but you're still writing and now here's a new story and stuff like that yeah i mean the reason that chris morris shows looked weird was because he was taking the radio thing and transferring it directly yeah. he didn't make any concessions and then you got things like Veep. when there's money you know something like Veep looks amazing because you've got a motorcade you've got <laughs> the white house you've got all these this big sort of spread of things then you've got something like The Thick of It, which is a very similar show, and that's yeah. pretty much filmed in offices. So you just get hired because either you can do the work or because you're funny, and hopefully both. Yeah, I suppose it's, get, it's about getting your, your name, people talking about you at the end of the day, is I suppose what's going get to get you the work. Well, yeah, and you just have a, you have a CV. You know, you make something. You're always looking for the next project, so you make something and that becomes a calling card. Oh, you know, I've written a film or a radio series or whatever. People are like, oh, well, I feel less uncomfortable about giving them work, so that's cool. Yeah, you've worked on some of the most innovative TV series over over the past, in recent times. Day to Day, Brass Eye, Smack the Pony, Beep, Thick of It, and of course, you narrated the Coach Trip series for a year, yeah, yeah, which is pretty... <laughs> I mean, that must have been a high point for you, Davis, you know? It was exciting. Um, it was <laughs> nice to do. It was a good show, Coach Trip. I liked it. I wish I could remember it. I got 14 <laughs> days with a vote of three people. If they don't, they get... The weirdest moment was when I was, I was actually working on Harry Hill's TV burp. Right. We had to watch other TV shows and mock them. Yeah. And I actually had to watch Coach Trip when I was no. in a... TV Burt meeting and listen to myself doing the narrating. It's really interesting doing narrating because you've got to say all these words in a very short period of time. Yeah. And sound interested in the subject, which can be quite difficult if it's like grated carrots. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you were, you were talking about Armando there and Chris. So did you meet Chris through Armando? In, uh, was that kind of a yeah. meeting? Well, me and Stephen Wells went for, went for a meeting in Armando's office at the BBC, and uh -huh. it was yeah. You would go in, there would be Armando, there would be uh, Richard Herring, Stuart Lee, Steve Coogan, Patrick Marber, David wow. Schneider, 
uh, Chris Morris, Rebecca Front. It was wow. a ludicrous amount of people. I mean, you know, that's the great thing about the BBC. If you get the if you're there at the right time, you yeah, can yeah. meet an incredible amount of people who are incredibly good at what they do. And yeah, most of those people have gone on to do something interesting. Mm. So, I mean, how did it work? Obviously, having that kind of variety of writers writing for the, all these different shows, how did it how did it work? Did you all kind of work separately and kind of bring ideas to the table? Did you work in, was it all solo or was there any sort of group work or how, how did it work? I don't really know. I mean, because I can only speak for myself, but me yeah, and yeah. Stephen would just go to his, we would be told, Oh, we need, we've got this character called Alan Partridge. He's a sports reporter. Um, and you'd go off and write some sketches. You wouldn't call them sketches, though, and they wouldn't get used or whatever. But generally, the Armando system that he goes on is that he'll work something out with a small central core of people like Simon Blackwell uh-huh. or Jesse Armstrong and then sort of farm it out. And people will write it up and then the scripts will get swapped around and be rewritten. So it's an incredibly efficient, detailed process. Um, yeah, it's more of a spiralling out than the American system, which I don't really understand. <laughs> but from the end where I was, it was just the traditional British thing of me and another man sitting in a room writing jokes. Wow. Yeah, because you wonder whether it's sort of like, like a jigsaw. You know, everyone kind of does all these separate pieces and then somehow it's magically all put together in, in, in well, a way that <laughs> is good to watch. Well, it's more like a sort of airfix kit that you draw a diagram of the aeroplane of what it's going to be. Then you manufacture the pieces, then someone glues them together and then someone yeah. paints them in exciting colours. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. No, I suppose it's all about synergy and getting the right people together. Do you know what I mean? There was obviously some sort of, uh, I hate to use the word magic, but <laughs> getting the right people in the right place at the right time. To... It is, and I was... I had to interview, I didn't have, I interviewed Victoria Wood for a magazine once. And um, oh, wow. she said, I said to her something like, why do you always use the same actors? And she said, because it's so hard to get any actors who understand what you're doing, that when <gasps> you get hold of someone who gets it, you stick with them. And I think that's true with a lot of things. If you're, you know, if I was writing on Mrs. Brown's Boys, it would be a disaster because I don't really know how to do that. And there's a certain sensibility in yeah. that show but when I worked on I remember watching the thick of it and like thinking that would be something I would really enjoy writing particularly the swearing and yeah <laughs> I did write for the thick of it and I did put in swearing and it was good there are some <laughs> things that are just right and some things aren't I mean obviously there was that it's, it's all about working with people you trust I suppose um you know Armando obviously trusted the way you the way you wrote to use for his pieces yeah I suppose so I mean I, I think so yes yeah, and it's, I mean, it must be immensely difficult putting together a show because there's always a slight risk element. You know, you can see quite often with shows when they start, there'll be somebody in it who doesn't quite make it to the second series or they'll yeah, be writers yeah, yeah. who are not returned to. So it's an always evolving thing. And one of the great things about Armando is if you look at a character like Alan Partridge, the way it's evolved over the years, the way different people have written it, but mm. the only constant is Armando's involvement and obviously Steve Coogan yeah. being in it. And that's because Armando is adaptable. Mm. You know, people talk about the late Barry Cryer a lot, who I knew, and it was great. And yeah. Barry's great thing was that he would always keep on top developments in stand-up, and he always knew who was coming up and stuff. Whereas you look at certain other 
elder statesmen of comedy and all they do is moan about how everything's woke nowadays and cancel culture and it's like just play golf or something <laughs> if you're not interested you know if the only your only interest in comedy is saying you don't like it anymore don't yeah. go and do something else yeah that makes total sense so what's your own what's your writing process david do you do you have a process um I mean, do you do you try and write for a certain period each day? Does it change depending on what project you're working with, who you're working with? Do you have a, a way you work? Um, yeah, generally I get up, do things. Then if I have an idea, because I don't work in one area only, if I have an mm. idea, I'll be like, is that a book or a radio show or a film or whatever? Yeah. And then I just start writing it up. And if it's not a commission from somebody... And then I go and try and find someone who might like it. Mm. Take it from there. Because most people most people nowadays, they say, I like your idea, but we haven't got any money. So you <laughs> then have to make a choice whether you're going to spend several months working on something for nothing. Yeah. You might not want or get a job. So I've always done the former. And yeah, this is it. You know, the, the radio show that I had on Radio 4, whatever happened to baby Jane Austen. Mm. They were unable to give me any money to write it. So I just wrote the scripts and people liked them. And so you have to be lucky enough to have the time to do that. But you should be able to find time to do things if you're a writer. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So obviously we, we mentioned Veep earlier. So I mean, is it is it a different writing mindset for something American? Let's, let's call, it, call it American, but HBO. Was it a different, did you have to change the way you wrote for Veep? To suit well, the American. Well, famously with Veep, I've not seen it, they did a pilot of The Thick of It for America. Mm. And it had Henry Winkler in, Fonz, who's also in Barry, who's brilliant, in the Malcolm Tucker role. And it was, I saw it, but it was much more like a conventional sitcom. And it got rejected. And I think Armando just took it back. And the thing is, that was an attempt to do an American Thick of It. Yeah, And yeah. Veep, is basically that. It's an American thick of it, but with a central character, a slightly different vibe. Mm. And it just, it it comes over very, I mean, the thing is, it, there weren't really any changes, except that you had to do different research. Right, you had to right. know about the White House, the American presidency. I remember, you know, Meyer walks into a glass door and the advisors said, well, that would literally never happen. <laughs> it couldn't happen. The vice president of America would not be allowed to walk into a glass door. Wow. So I think a man just said well we'll ignore that um, <laughs> but you know with, with me, it was the same writers the same producers same directors from the thick of it the difference is that it was made in America with an American crew and American wow. actors and I think that made a difference I think it was a different perspective I've heard people say that whereas in Veep you know they don't in America they don't have any reverence for monarchy because they don't have one and while they can be quite vicious about attacking the president for his politics or whatever, the office of the presidency is not something that people really take the mickey out of. Yeah, yeah. Things seem to have changed a bit since then. But the idea that you would be like going, oh, this is a stupid system, and, you know, all these people are idiots. <laughs> so I think that we've, Armando and everyone, brought a, a British sensibility to it mm. rather than the other way around. It wasn't... You often see people, like, take British sitcoms and then go, Gee, I'm in America. Let's do. Let's drink some soda on the sidewalk, <laughs> and it kind of loses a certain element because there's something about 
something about British depression, I think. Yeah, yeah, British yeah. That you lose in an American sitcom. Yeah. No, it's different sensibility, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I, I don't understand a lot of this whole taking British sitcoms and trying to Americanize them. You know, it's... It, it's it, weird. Kind of, it can get lost in translation a little bit, you know, the... It does, but what's interesting about that, they took that and made old Sanford and Son. Yeah, sort yeah. of implication boring, but what they did, Norman Lear did, was he made the main characters African-American, mm. American black people. And suddenly the whole comedy world of, look how, you don't really talk about it in the British one, look how poor they are. You know, they live in a slum, they bath in the sink. Suddenly this becomes a different world. And yeah. Yeah, that American perspective, not the Californian sunny perspective, but and I think when they did that with Shameless as well, mm. that kind of work, they made Shameless into kind of trailer park America, and that was a successful show. So, I mean, you know, things changed. The Office worked in America. I don't know, but I think yeah, what used to fail was it became Good Morning Teeth. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the the office was was crazy, wasn't it? How the the office, uh, the American version was was yeah. massive. The office was massive, and people still talk about which was better, which is interesting. But that worked really well. What do you think yourself, David? Are you willing to give us a, an opinion? <laughs> I haven't seen the American Office, to be honest. Um, I mean, I guess it's pretty good, but yeah, uh, Steve Carell. You know, can't really go wrong with Steve Carell. I think. No, I mean, it's an amazing cast. And again, those people went on to populate every American movie for the next five years. Yeah. So, as I say, for Veep, you won an Emmy for being a part of the, the writing team for Veep. Yeah, I nice. mean, what, what do the awards mean to you? Are, are, are awards, you know, I can, I can see there's a couple of awards, <laughs> a few awards there behind you. you. I mean, you've got an Emmy, a BAFTA for the Harry Hill writing, Writers Guild for the thick of it. Do awards mean anything is it any kind of vindication of what you do well it's nice to get them it's nice to get the attention yeah it's nice to stand behind a lectern and go thank you very much for this <laughs> people while famous people are watching and they're forced to laugh yeah um, yeah there's the vanity there's work that if you get an award it helps yeah good for the cv Got an award so <laughs> i must be doing something right but the main thing is, to be honest, just it makes you feel you're not sinking. Yeah. Because you know, with any job, you're sort of floating about in this huge sea of mud, waving your hands, and you need to be noticed and pulled out or whatever. And you made a show. I've made hundreds of shows where it's like, did anybody notice? And you feel really proud of a show. And mm. you, know, you write a science fiction comedy, and then you meet someone who goes, you know what? You should write a science fiction comedy. And you're like, but I, I, <laughs> I did already. <laughs> When you win an award, it's like a translation for people. You know, they're like, oh, I don't know what that show is. I'm never going to hear it or watch it. But it got an award. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, the bigger the award. But, yeah, it does help. And they look nice on the mantelpiece. I hate people who put their awards in the toilet. Like, oh, you know, this old thing. Like, well, if you don't want the flipping thing, chuck it. It's not a doorstop. Bookend. <laughs> so what, what, is it, what does a typical day look like? For you, David, I, I I just see you over a, over a, a writing desk for much of your day. <laughs> well, yeah, I just get up, um, do various chores, then sit down and write, and then play with the dog, and that's it, really. He's just <laughs> writing. 
you know, computers are great because in the old days you had a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. You type on it and then you had to get up. Whereas now, you know, if I wanted to, I could play a game when I was talking to you. I could even do some writing. You know, you can do seven things. So yeah. you can order food thanks to COVID. I could sit here. <laughs> I lived on my own. I wouldn't have to get up except to soil myself. So... <laughs> So well, after, I'd have to talk about this incredible whatever happened to Baby Jane Austen radio series. It's now in its second series on Radio 4. An amazing cast. Um, and it's yeah. very kind of visual, you know, obviously on radio. Uh, how did the series come about initially? Well, I was a big fan of like American 30s and 40s screwball comedy. And there was a movie, there's a play called Old Acquaintance, and it's about I thought it was about two sisters and I thought one of them was the idea was that one of them was a popular writer who wrote trashy novels and one of them was a serious writer. But when I read it again, I turned out it was slightly different to that. I think they're not sisters and stuff. But anyway, so I had this idea and yeah, we showed it to Dawn French and she said she'd like to do it with Jennifer Saunders. And that was a bit amazing. Wow. Because yeah. they don't do a lot together oh, no. these days. Um, and yes, I wrote a script and BBC liked it. But the fun thing for me was that writing about these two kinds of culture, you know, there's obviously the big thing of the two sisters who don't get on with each other. And Dawn French, Dawn is really good at these characters who are just full of pent up envy and resentment. So the whole joke was that her sister becomes a famous author overnight writing a tacky autobiography, while Dawn's character is struggling hard to make any money out of writing and so it was a chance to write as well about those two kinds of culture popular culture because mm. jennifer saunders character selena as you know a slightly tacky movie star who gets invited to do loads of tv yeah and yeah. loves fame and superficial glitter <laughs> whereas florence dawn's character thinks she's a serious writer who's dealing with serious literary issues and, you know, the joke for me is it's the same thing. It's show business. And Dawn and Florence is as more obsessed with fame and being noticed than her sister is. And it was just, they're, they're the greatest comedy actors in the world. Oh, definitely. So, I, I mean, mean, it must have been it must have been great to get that second series. Anyway, it's always a, a nice, it's always a good sign, isn't it? You know, if you get that second series, especially on radio these days. Well, especially for me, because most of the comedies I've written never got a second series. So that was always a bit depressing. No, it's brilliant to have a second series. I hope we get a third one. Uh, and that's where awards help, because people go, oh, they want an award. Maybe it's good. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed doing it so much. I enjoyed writing for them. And it's interesting, because with Dawn, when you write stuff for Dawn, she does it the same way as the voice in your head does. You can hear her doing it when you write it, and it sounds like that. Whereas with Jennifer Saunders, you have no idea <laughs> how she's going to say it, because she is playing Selena as someone who's slightly deranged, which I think is fair. Yeah, yeah. So some of the line readings are completely bizarre, but brilliant. And then we've had a bit of a rotating cast, you know, for the usual reasons of scheduling. We had Joseph Simon for the pilot and Rebecca Front, mm. who's one of my favourite actors for... It's incredible. ...for Mrs Ragnarok for the first series. And this time we've got Mira Sayal, who is also astonishing. And, yeah, it's just Lisa McGrillis, of course, or Lucy in the first series, and Georgia Tennant, who's fantastic yeah, yeah. in the second series. And Alistair McGowan, he can do really good impressions. He does a mm. frightening version of Richard. 
um, but also characters. Yeah, so it's great. It's like a, a rep company of five yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. And they're all brilliant. That's the thing. I mean, has it become what you had in your head initially, your, from your initial idea to hear what it's, how it's, uh, when you hear it broadcasted on Radio 4, is it, has it changed a lot? Does that make sense to no, not your initial all, idea? It hasn't changed at all, as I say. I think I did have Selena slightly more as a Joan Cole. But to be honest, that would have been quite boring because if you've yeah, got yeah, Dawn's yeah. character and you've just got two slightly similar voices being a bit bitchy, whereas Dawn and Jennifer's versions are so different. Yeah, no, it did turn out exactly as I wanted because I wanted it to sound like a screwball comedy, yeah, yeah. Like all about Eve or something like that, where people say waspish, brilliant things all the time. It was weird because the first review said things like, it's got loads of jokes in it. <laughs> I was like, well, don't all comedies have jokes in them? Oh, thanks. Well, I suppose they mean it doesn't have sort of extended weird riffs or just people going, well, you know me, and everyone laughing at, yes, we do. I'm much more about writing memorable lines that get quoted in reviews. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose it's about getting those those two main voices. Do you know what I mean? You couldn't. I, I don't think now listening to it that I can imagine anybody else playing those two those two characters. No, it would be hard. It would be hard to imagine that. And they are brilliant. So I've been very lucky. I mean, I'm aware that a lot of the success of it is down to them. But when you're a writer, you always think that it's, you make the show and people are going, well, I don't need the actors. I could just read the script. But <laughs> obviously, it's a French and Saunders show. It's not yeah. a me show. Well, you know, you're writing the words, David. So, I mean, you know, take some credit. <laughs> yeah. Worked. I worked on a show where they had Peter Wingard, who was Jason King in the 70s, and oh, apparently right. yeah, he yeah. told the director that words are just guidelines for the actors, which is interesting. And I think a lot of actors think like that. So, yeah, we get the idea. You just want some <laughs> stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then I make a brilliant face. And they have a point. Well, you know, I suppose actors wouldn't be anywhere if they didn't have the, the stories and the the guy's writing these pieces. There's got to be a oh, catalyst somewhere. Someday I'd like to get some actors, put them in a room and say, go on then. <laughs> yeah. Still half an hour with your melodious voices. So what, what are you working on at the moment, David? Can you, can you tell us about anything you're working on at the moment? Fingers in lots of pies as usual? Well, I'm rewriting someone's script, which mm -hmm. is a thing I do, which is nice where you get given a script that someone's trying to sell and you just make it looser right i'm editing a novel that i wrote because i've had a lot of novels rejected lately so i've written another one right right and just writing some script ideas of my own that i hope somebody will like and also waiting for paid work because that's a large part of my job waiting for someone to send me some work that gets money in it yeah i mean that's the thing i suppose working freelance i suppose is it's kind of a hand-to-mouth job sometimes yeah, I mean, famine and feast is the cliche. Mm. You either get lots of money or you don't get any at all. It could be a bit annoying, but there we go. So let's talk a little bit about music now. Obviously, um, obviously with your, your past with the NME, so have there been any sort of big music loves in your life, be it an artist or a, or a band? 
yeah, I really like the Beatles. I really like David Bowie. I like the punk group Buzzcock. I mean, there's loads of people I really like. Mm. Generally, obviously, from an era when I was a bit younger. So I love people like the Pet Shop Boys and New Order. Um, I like all kinds of music. When I was at school, like most people, I was very prejudiced. You know, I didn't like country and western. I didn't really yeah, like yeah, yeah. Well, that sort of thing. But now, you know, I don't care as long as I like it. So what do you, what have you got in the car at the moment? Do you are you a, are you a, um, a music listener or are you a radio listener? I try and listen to an old iPod. When that seizes up, I put on Radio One, which is all right. <laughs> um, oh, let's have a look. Well, I don't know. I just can't. I, I think I think you get to a certain age where you can't listen to Radio One anymore. It's like weird white the, noise, you know. Well, the trick is to listen to it a lot because the first time you hear it, you're like, oh god, it all sounds the same. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you listen to it for a week and you realise that there is a difference between the weekend and drake and <laughs> charlie xcx um but it's like you know when i was a kid if we were on, so when i was a when i was a teenager there was glam rock and that all sounded yeah, the same yeah. it's the same flipping drum that's true and then in the early in the 80s pop music probably pretty much sounded the same you know the same drum sounds and synths to people so when you're in it it's different mm. that's the only problem when you get older is you're not part of that world you don't have you know when you're a kid, you hear music coming out of everywhere. Your friends are listening to music. When you get older, you have to make an effort to listen to, you know, you feel a bit weird as well, listening to the charts. Yeah, know what I mean. So were you a, were you a gig goer? Well, I had to be. It was my, Yeah, when I was at the NMA, mm. well, you went to gigs for free. So, you know, I would go three or four times a week. Wow. And it was my social life because you'd get free drinks. But yeah, you know, I was a music, so it'd be like, what do you do? You go into the office. What are you doing tonight? I'm going to go and see Blur. Oh, you'd phone up the press officer and then you'd go and see Blur. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really, that was my social life completely in that respect. And it was great. Go to the same places every week because it was London. Mm. Uh, you could see a new band every week. So I did. Yeah, like places like the Astoria and the and the LA too. Just, you know, yeah, it's so sad that they that they went. I think it's a bad thing. You know, I don't think all music has to be live, made by hairy people, but... I think there should be a lot more live venues, and I think it was mm. a great experience for people. Yeah. So, have there been any sort of gig highlights? Uh, best best band, best live gig you've ever been at? Was there any kind of band that you were like, "Wow, this is this is incredible"? Oh, if I went to see the Manic Street Preachers, uh huh, that was always really good. Um, New Order were always really good. Most exciting gigs I saw. I saw Manic Street, Manic, the Manic Street Preachers at a place called the Diorama, which was. Their famous breakthrough group gig in that right. until then, everybody had thought they were crap. They thought they were like second-rate punk posers. Um, but they did this emotional gig, and they were incredible. And after that, everyone thought they were great. I think my favourite gig that I remember is I went to see Meatloaf, who I really loved. Yeah, yeah. And it was, again, it was a warm-up gig for a tour, and it was in a nightclub in Rhode Island, which is a place I can't tell you anything about. <laughs> and it was in a, a former department store. And as Meatloaf was one of those people who was completely over the top in his song. Yeah, book. yeah. And it was a brilliant gig. It was designed to impress the press and it really worked. But yeah, I've seen loads. What's your favourite gig? I don't know. I've seen so many. I'm more of a, a, a smaller venue person. I'm not a fan of the stadium hmm. sort of impersonal, you know, a lot of gigs in the, in the Astoria back in the day, Shepherd's Bush Empire. Those kind of venues, yeah. But like Divine Comedy, are my are my main love. 
I see from your notice board that you like yes. them. <laughs> um, Robert Palmer is my, oh, my, main, my main love. I love um, Robert Palmer. Not many people he... love Robert Palmer. I know. I mean, you know, you kind of wonder what these people would be doing now. Um, would they still be? I'm, I'm assuming that he'd kind of be doing what Rod Stewart and Brian Ferry and all those guys are, are doing now. But I don't know. I don't know. It's always like, what if? There's a lot yeah, of what ifs was... involved. He never got the he never really got the respect because first of all he wasn't successful, and then because of addicted to love there was all yeah. that. But he was not seen as a I don't know he was always seen as of course second rate Brian Ferry which is unfair because he really I like to experiment, you know, music from all around the world working with, and also it's like because he got a bit unlucky he's like oh I really like electronic music I'll work with Gary Newman which now yeah, yeah, yeah. is a very cool thing but then was a bit like oh really you know because Gary Newman was seen as a bit of a joke but. Yeah, Robert, I only saw him once at a club in, uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a venue that normally showed Cats, the musical. Right. It was near Longacre. And yeah, I went to see him there, and it, he was great. And it's such a shame that he died young for a variety yeah. of reasons. And yeah, he would have done a lot more, and he would have had a career, he would have had a bit of respect, I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I've, uh, that, that, like, the whole Bowie thing at the moment, I'm kind of like, you know, I kind of wish... That Robert had the kind of the respect, I suppose. That I mean, obviously they're two very, very different artists. Oh yeah. But like you know, I kind of wish that Robert had that kind of reverence that Bowie gets. <laughs> that Bowie gets. Well, he just got a bit unlucky because yeah, it's sort of people pick and choose. So like because he did Addicted to Love and because yeah. he did a lot of, he got this sort of like sexist, misogynist reputation. Um, and I think he was a bit saucy, but no worse <laughs> than a lot of people. Yeah. I think he would have more of a reputation. He'd probably get more of a reputation as time goes on. Yeah. No, I mean, as I said, there's a lot of these these people like, you know, your Amy Winehouses and your, you know, even your, your John Lennons and your Freddie Mercury's. What would they be doing? What would they be doing now? Would they have, would they still be making music? Would they be, would, I, would they have gone off on a different tangent? Yeah. It's interesting with all these people. Being dead does rather draw a line. Yeah. <laughs> So who are you listening to at the moment, uh, David? Is there any anything, any sort of music-wise that you're listening well, to? It's been a bit weird. Um, <laughs> I'd expect I no less. To some soundtracks. I listened to yeah, the Oppenheimer yeah. thing, which was all right. Nice. Some, I'm looking at things here, some old Simple Minds. Um, Kevin Ayres, because I kept seeing his name. Yeah. He's good. I bought, for some reason, I just saw... a a techno CD called Fabric Presents, and I'm reading Why? it, Sama Abdul Hardy, who's a Palestinian DJ, a woman. Um, and I don't know, just after Christmas, I thought I feel like some techno. And it's just, it's great. Nothing happens. It's like an hour. And it's pretty much, the, it's the same beat. It's slight variations, really minimalist. And I'm enjoying it greatly. So I recommend that. That's the beauty of it, though, isn't it? You can just dip in. You think, oh, fancy a bit of techno today. Or I'm, yeah. I'm in a bit of a this kind of mood, and you could just dip into something for a few weeks, and then dip into something else. It's you know the thing for me is just not sinking into this marsh of mojo ness. Yeah, just nothing wrong with mojo, nothing wrong with the bands they cover, but this whole sort of idea, classic rock. I like yeah. classic rock magazine, but like yeah, sort of this is the the gold standard, and these are the great groups, and anything silly or poppy or weird doesn't really count and it's just a very 
like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that rubbish and <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine, just sort of old white men. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a bit, a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? That whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. You're kind of like, how do they even... How do they even make that list of people? Uh, just, we talked about awards earlier. And I think, yeah, awards are fun, but oh, God, I very much like people who don't want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, and it's, it's like people who turn down knighthoods. I wouldn't do it. I'd like a medal, but I understand why. And certainly if I was approached and asked to join the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, <laughs> I would refuse. Because if I was asked to join it, then I'd probably be rich already. And by yeah, turning yeah, it yeah. down, I'd get plenty of publicity. So what's the point? You're just in there with Fleetwood Mac or something like that. <laughs> it's not normally any old Joe Soap, is it? It's always these multi-million selling artists. Yeah, they're dreadful acts. And then every so often, they give it to a dead black man because they feel bad. <laughs> oh, like, oh, here's someone who never made any money, but we look good, you know. <laughs> Let's give them an award. <laughs> like buying a T-shirt. It's horrific. Okay. Well, you're a busy man, David. So thank you so, so much for chatting no, with me today. You. Give me really your nice time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it greatly.